This is what I want to do. If you'll stand with me, we're going to go into Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and says we'll read. All right, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of man, did not count equality a thing to equality with, a, with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen, amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So we start off in, in verses Verse chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, right? And where Paul sort of sets the tone as we're going into the next chapter. And the verse I have up on the screen is the NIV because I feel like it captures a couple of pieces that I really um, feel is, is helpful to flesh this out. If he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... And make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. As you guys already know, as we already started to give the backdrop of this church, it was, it was a highly diverse church, right? Um, when I say diverse, uh, again, you know, they, they, had, they had women that it was diverse um, economically because you have people that was like business owners. You have people that, um, that their occupation was being a slave, right? Um, you had people that um, were um, correctional officers, people that, that was being jailed by the correctional officers. I mean, you, I mean, you have so many different people, and the majority of them um, were, were, were Gentiles. They didn't, um, they, were, they didn't grow up Jewish knowing the tradition and, and being a part of the, of the transition. Um, and then, yes, there were some Jewish people there, right? Um, but this was the context of the church. And when we went to chapter 1, um, we hear Paul talking about the joy that he had for them, right? He was talking about, he was going on about, he had such joy um, for their partnership in the gospel. See, um, they was consistently partnering with him in his missionary journeys, right? As he was going out, they would, they would send help. They would send finances to him. Um, and so they was constantly doing that. So when we opened up chapter 1, he was talking to them about that, right? And that was um, the heart of, of, of chapter 1. And as he was continuing to, to, teach, to talk to them, you get to, to, to chapter 2, and, and Paul starts to have this pastoral moment with them, right? In this pastoral moment, 
he, he asked them four questions basically to ask one, right? He asked them four different questions basically to ask one, and that one question that he's asking is, are you benefiting from your union with Christ, right? Like, are you, are you, are you benefiting from this? He asked, four, he asked in four different ways, and when he says you, right, this is a plural you, all right? It's not like just an individual you. It's sort of like if I'm talking to you guys, I'm like, hey, you. So, like, it's like, so it means like you all, okay? So he asked him, like, have you been encouraged by Christ, right? Do, do you, based on your union with Christ, have you been encouraged? He goes on and he asks, like, has you been comforted by his love, right? As, as a benefit of this union with Christ, would you testify that I have been comforted by his love? Would that be your testimony? He goes on and he's asking these questions. And he says, have you had an opportunity to participate in the Spirit's work, right? As, as, as a side effect of, of being joined together with Christ, would you testify that you've had an opportunity to participate inside of his work? As a matter of fact, have you noticed your heart growing in affection and sympathy, He's asking these questions, but again, he's asking all those questions to basically ask, one, are you benefiting from your union in Christ? Are you having a personal and individual benefit from this, right? But they're all rhetorical questions. He's not actually asking to find out whether or not it's true, because he already believes it's true. It's one of those type of questions where it's like, I already know the answer to this, but I'm asking it just rhetorically, right, because I want to draw your attention to it, right? He already assumes the answer is yes. As a matter of fact, these are the reasons why he was writing about how much joy he had for them. He knows that they've been participating with the Spirit because they've been participating with him. He knows these, these answers are true, right? This is what he talks about inside of his letter, and, and the reality of his great joy that he has for them are rooting in all these things. So he knows it's yes. But then he says, complete my joy, right? That's the thing here. Then he says, complete my joy. Like, though I have great joy regarding you, this joy is incomplete, right? That's what it implies. That's what it says. Like, right, complete my joy. Though I got great joy regarding you, this joy is incomplete. All these things that I'm talking about, if that's all you have, it's not enough. There is an incompleteness. If, 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 if. You're just saying, yo, man, I'm so encouraged by the gospel, and being encouraged by the gospel is sort of where it stops at. It's incomplete. If, if, if you're saying, oh, oh, I know that he loves me so much. I've been so comforted by his love, and that's, what you, that's your testimony, but it sort of stops there. there there's an incompleteness to it. If you're able to even point out, oh, I've done this for the Lord, and I've done that for the Lord, and you're able to point out these opportunities that you've had to participate with the Lord, but it's sort of stopping there, it's not enough. It's incomplete. As a matter of fact, if you merely notice that you've been growing in your affection and sympathy, it's growing inside of your heart, but it's incomplete. He's building on this, and he's basically saying, though individually you've experienced this, individually you've been united with Christ, um, you was united together with a community of believers. It's not just you. You're not just in it by yourself. It's been a, a, a fam that you've been brought into, right? 
And this, there's a reality to this, to this nature that the church is a family and there's diverse pieces, and you've been brought into that. So basically, when he says, let me tell you what would make my joy complete, he's saying, live into your union with others that comes with your union with Christ. Right? That's, that's fine that the Lord is doing all these things, right? But make my joy complete. By being united, make my joy complete by living into this union. And he calls for that in four specific ways. First, he says, be like-minded. Be like-minded. Like, whatever believers think regarding the implications of the gospel should be the same, regardless of their differences, right? Because this is the gospel. These are the pillars of the gospel, right? It shouldn't be different depending on your political party. Like, because of my political party, I sort of think the gospel implies this differently. It shouldn't be different based off of your ethnicity. It shouldn't be different based off of your economical status, your gender, your age. Those things shouldn't change the implications of the gospel because it's the gospel, right? So be like-minded. This is important. And he continues to talk about the reality of his union, and he goes on and he says, have the same love. Have the same love. Like, though we're, we're diversely different, though we are uniquely shaped and molded differently, we have different experiences, and we've came in through different roads, it was the same love of Christ that reached all of their hearts. Whether he was talking to the women that was praying, or whether he was talking to the people in the jail, or whether he was talking to the jailer, or whether he was talking to the, to the slave girl, it was the same love of Christ. It wasn't a different love. Paul didn't go and say, let me preach a different gospel to each person. He may have utilized his different avenues to preach the same gospel. It was motivated and moved by the same love. There should be a central theme of love that characterizes all Christians, regardless of our differences, right? We may express it differently, but it's the same love. People should be able to look at it and be like, oh, I I saw that, and I saw that from this person and that person. They are so different, but that's the same. So he's, he's calling them together. He continues to talk about it, and then in the NIV it says, he, told, he called them to be one in spirit. And ESV says on full accord, right? So even though they use this different language, it's both saying the same thing. You see, when it says full accord, this word accord means um, a harmonious union of different sounds and colors being brought together in, 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 in harmony, right? That's what it means here, right? Um, um, so he says, be in full accord in your differences. These things are harmoniously walking together, and the Spirit of God is what's setting the tone. Like, there should be a harmonious relationship between diverse believers, like different sounds and instruments, playing one song together with the Spirit of God as the conductor. So he calls them to be one in spirit or in full accord. Then he says, be of one mind. Like Paul is saying this because, now, like the word of, the word of in Scripture is often used to, 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 to say formed by, 
formed by, shaped by, or byproduct. It came out of this. And he says, be of one mind. And in their time, just like our time, um, there were so many different minds that were shaping and forming the culture at that time. So many different um, um, modes of thinking, way of processing that was shaping and molding the culture from different people that were setting certain tones, right? You have like Alexander the Great who had came before and, and he had set up in Macedonia where Philippi was. And, and, and he had influenced culture so much so that they started to regard him as divine, right? And now, even as Alexander the Great had, had, had passed on, you had um, General Augustus that was there, and they started to do the same thing with him. The, the, the way he thought and processed had influenced culture so much, they started to regard him as, as divine, right? And you also had, like, in all these um, huge Greek minds and thinkers that was forming the culture, right? So oftentimes, the, the teachings and thoughts of these great teachers influence how some of the believers would live into and process the gospel, right? They would hear the gospel, they would listen to the gospel, but what they was being formed by what was the common thoughts of the day, and there was many different common thoughts, right? So that influenced how they lived into it, which divided how they lived into the gospel. So Paul is here, and he's encouraging them to be of one mind, basically be of one school of thought, like one organism thinking collectively together, rooted inside of the gospel, expressed in so many different ways, but the same school of thought. This is what he's talking about when he's saying, make my joy complete, live into these things, right? But then he goes into verses 3 and 5, and I think when he goes to verses 3 and 5, he starts to bring it down to earth, right? He's like, all right, I'm talking about this, but... What does it look like actually lived out, actually fleshed out? What does it take to live into this, right? So I know we've been talking about this, right, um, Brett? And what I would love for you to do, like, as we've been talking and praying through it, is sort of flesh out some of the things the Lord has been showing you based on verses 3 to 5. Yeah, so let's take a look. 3, 4, and 5. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul is setting up a contrast here between two ways of living. Um, he's saying, don't live this way, but live this way. Be this kind of people. And Wayne has been talking about this, this one mind. And again, in a, in, Paul is saying to the church, be of the same mind like Wayne said, it's not just any mind. It's not just grabbing onto one of the thoughts of the day or a collection that we kind of put together. I like a little of that, a little of that. There's many groups that share a common mind around an issue and have a shared vision and way of seeing the world and a way of life. And Paul is specifically calling the Philippian church to live in a world that's shaped by the gospel. Remember, in chapter 1, last week, his call to them to live as citizens— worthy of the gospel of Christ. So as people who live in this world, in a culture, amid jobs and family and social commitments and all these different things, you're to live as worthy citizens of the kingdom. 
So the gospel of Jesus preaches, the, the gospel that Jesus preaches is good news about the kingdom of God. We can use the word gospel a lot and forget to really like think about what is the gospel. And Jesus says, I'm preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The good news is that the kingdom is here. And as Wayne discussed, Paul points to these, these things that they're experiencing, encouragement, love, sympathy, affection. And what he's doing is he's saying, these are markers of the kingdom. This is what the kingdom looks like. This is the culture of the kingdom. He's introducing them to a new reality. When you step into the kingdom of God, this is what it looks like. This is the culture. Paul says, do this, don't do this because that is what fits the world that you have stepped into in Jesus. To live this life, to live into oneness, you're, we have to step into a new way of seeing the world. The gospel comes and it presents to us a whole new story. It's a different interpretation on what's really real, and it's an invitation to live into that reality. The gospel asks every single one of us, will I live under the rule and reign of God? Or am I going to choose to live under the rule and instruction of something else? It's not a question of whether or not you're living under something. It's what is giving the instruction and rule for your life. And Paul is really aware of this because he sees the culture around them. He sees the influences of, of Greek and Roman thought. And he knows that the people in this church spend 99% of their time not in the church but they're at work and they're with their family and their friends and their unbelieving neighbors and coworkers and they're having conversations and they're living as participants in all of the aspects of culture and he's telling them that that way of life that you live out there just like you are here needs to be shaped by a different vision of the world. The gospel presents a whole new way of thinking about all of life. In verse three, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit we need to think about the church in Philippi, the way that they were shaped and formed, and when they came together and when their leaders and the apostles are teaching them, they're teaching the life of Jesus, the, the preaching of Jesus. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus said. This is what Jesus explained when he said that, what it means. And they're, they're soaking in Jesus. They're being taught the way of Jesus. They're being helped to apply the way of Jesus to their life. Jesus' life preaching in his kingdom was the content of their worship time together, their teaching. And they would remember, as Paul is helping them to draw their attention back to what he's called them to, they would remember the story in the life of Jesus where this mom comes to Jesus. And she makes this request, and she says, Jesus, I have two sons. Can, they, can you make them really great? Would you put one on one side and one on the other and let them rule with you? And Jesus, he looks at her and he responds that there is a power-grabbing, self-promoting way of the world. There is a selfish ambition that says, make a life for yourself. Rule your own life. But it is not so in God's world. The greatest is the one who serves like Jesus serves. And Paul is encouraging them to remember that reality. Um, like our own culture, in Philippi, um, there was just this strong current of self-ambition. There was this strong just pressure to climb the social ladder, to compete for position, to have honor. Now, having taught them Jesus, Paul wants to flesh out the implications of what it looks like to actually live like Jesus, to walk in the way of Jesus in a culture that's so at odds with that. So it's 
the way of Jesus against this cultural idea that I'm first, my ambition, my glory, I'm most important. And if we think about that, if I'm the center and everything revolves around me, how is that going to impact our attitude if we are called to be a people of one mind in one accord who sees the world with Christ at the center? And um, Paul calls out, he kind of calls out the kingdoms of the world. He calls, he calls our attention to realize that this does not align with the kingdom of God. Self-protection, self-promoting, serving your own interest, it is incompatible with the kingdom of God. It doesn't really line up with reality. Like I said, it's not something that just happens in the gathered church. It's how we live as citizens in all of life. And so he presents them with this contrast. Okay, so do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So now the contrast is, but in humility, consider others as more significant than yourself. And I think it's easy to hear the word humble and think it might say something more like, be nice as you do things and, and you know, consider others as important. Um, or, oh, she was so humble, she wasn't all that full of herself. Um, but humble is a lot more like humiliating in this context. Um, those who were considered humble, those are the servants, the lowly, the dejected, the, those that you could just kind of tread upon and it didn't really matter. Okay, they were without power and glory, and Paul is basically saying, you need to be humiliated. Paul is helping highlight how the kingdom of God redefines life, and it does that always in Jesus. To have this life in oneness, we have to enter into the reality of the world that Jesus defines. So Christ-defined unity demands a Christ-formed humility in us. So this humility recognizes that we are completely dependent on God. It understands our own littleness in light of his greatness. Um, in a sense, it denies the world's delusions of grandeur about ourselves. Arian's going to impact for us in a little bit that humility is an unconditional posture of servanthood. It's daily. It's always it's a completely different reality. In verse 3, he goes on to say, think of others as more significant than yourself. And we hear an echo as Paul is always talking about the importance of the body of Christ being one, that you can't say to another piece, oh, I don't need you. To think of others more significant than yourself is not to say, oh, woe is me, I am nothing, but it is to look at your brother and your sister and to say, I need you. I need to hear from you. I need to hear from God through your life. I need you. Humility, then, is coming under God's way of viewing the world, which is another way of saying it's obedience. It's submitting to this new master and Lord over our life. We're coming under God's rule, under his instruction for how life is meant to be lived. We're no longer standing under the, the lords and masters and values and idols of other kingdoms. We're not standing on our own interpretation of life. We're not standing under the life we want to make for ourselves, but we are bringing everything that we are and letting it be aligned to the kingdom of God. So this humiliation embraces dependence in a world that is so set on independence. It recenters human life and particularly it recenters the life of us as God's family around Jesus. He goes on um, that each of us should not only look out to our own interests, 
but also to the interests of others. So oneness demands humility, and humility demands proximity, okay? Our closeness in relationship to Jesus and to each other, it's absolutely impossible to know what's in the best interest of another person if you don't get close. Who, and I think in that, what interests? Like, people are so diverse, and they're, they're so complicated. Humans are incredible. What interests are we paying attention to? Um, and it's those that are in line with the purposes and intentions and kingdom of, of, of Christ. Um, Paul touched on chapter 1. He's, he talked about that we do this for the sake of Jesus, and he's going to go further um, later in chapter 2 that ultimately everything is pointing to the sake, fame, glory, and name of Jesus. Um, and in case that sounds a little over-spiritual, remember that the kingdom of God, the good news, is for every single crevice and corner of life. So Jesus has things to say about finances and the poor and the broken and our bodies and our minds and our spirits. And he's saying, in all of that, you're looking out for the interests and the lives of others that align with the purposes and intentions of Jesus and his kingdom. We only come to know what those are by knowing Jesus. In the family of God, your interests as my brothers and sisters are tied so deeply to my relationship with Jesus. And as I'm in a, in a relationship with Christ, that comes and it impacts and it informs the way that we relate to one another. So against the contrast with the ways of the world, which is looking out for itself, protecting, not letting you see too much, the gospel calls us to get emotionally and relationally, physically close to people, requires vulnerability and relationship. We hear the commands of Jesus telling us to love one another, submit to one another, serve one another, confess our sins to one another, confront one another, forgive one another. These are costly, humiliating steps, okay? Walking in the way of Jesus it's a sacrifice of the other kingdoms that we once served. It's a commitment to God's way of life, and it leads to the death of the false kingdoms that we, that we worship. So we get to this point at the end of verse 4, and how in the world do we do this? How do we align our life to a world that is so different from the world that we've grown up in and the world around us? And he says in verse 5, have the same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus. We need Jesus' view of the world. We can't do this without the mind of Christ, but it says it's ours in Jesus. It's our connection to Jesus through the Spirit. It's a living thing. It's the very mind of Christ. It's not some, like, external thing that he's like, oh, here, have, have this and go live your life, and it'll help you over here in the things that you apply it to but it is deeply connected and only available to us as we are united to Jesus. It's Christ's mind, unable to be separated and severed from him. It's not something we take and we walk away with as something to possess, but it is something that we enter into. It requires us to look fully in the face of Jesus and submit to him. To share in that mind is bringing everything that we are, all of the pieces of our life, our emotions, the physical things that we engage in underneath the rule and reign of Jesus. But the hope that we have is that he is ours. He has been fully obedient to the Father, and he has offered us to participate in his life in the perfect submission by the Spirit to Jesus. 
And so to do this, to live in this humility, to live in this new way of life, we enter into Jesus. We fellowship with Jesus. He becomes the orienting centerpiece of our life. Our focus together is on him. And when this happens, the kind of humility that Paul is saying that is willing to completely debase itself for the sake of the kingdom becomes possible. So this kingdom humility is the fruit of abiding in Jesus. It is a collective response. So as every single one of us responds individually to our responsibility to Christ, he says specifically, each of you is to do this. We hear in our world, and it's really easy to say, have unity, be unified, you know, get on board, just just figure it out, you know, come together. And um, this unity that he's calling us to is deeply rooted in Jesus, and it doesn't come about by just saying, oh, have unity, oh, just, you know, put aside the differences, but it comes from deeply abiding in Jesus. It is the fruit of countless seeds countless moments of choosing to submit to Jesus. It's the fruit of that personal abiding in Christ as a community, in each other's lives, nourished together in the story, in the life, and the preaching of Jesus. We have the same mind as each one of us is being molded and melded and formed into the life of Christ through our obedience as we enter into his way of life in the world. This one mind that Paul has been talking about requires us to fellowship and abide in Jesus. This oneness is directly, directly connected to our relationship with Christ. That's awesome, right? When you think about Paul starting off and saying, hey, make my joy complete by living into unity, but then the way that you live into unity is by humility, and here are all the practical realities of it. And then you get the verses 5 through 8, and I feel like what he does in 5 through 8 is, is, is it turns all of our attention off of us onto God himself, onto Jesus, right? You know, as, as this example, right? So I know we've talked about this and we prayed. And I love if you would just share, like, what the Lord was showing you in 5 to 8 as, as our attention is turned to, to Jesus himself. All right. So it says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in keeping with the mind of Christ that Brittany's described, um, we're going to break down verse 6 for some more detail on how the mind of Christ is walked out or actually displayed says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So when we look at verse 6, we can draw a parallel between the scenario of Adam, who was, um, he represents all of us, and Jesus, who saved all of us. In the scenario of Adam, we have a man who was created by God in the likeness of God. Adam was charged with specific tasks of uh, stewarding creation and procreating with Eve, and these reflected the works that God himself had uh, completed. But when the serpent approached Adam with the prospect of becoming like God, Adam grasps for it. He uh, forgot that he was already created in the likeness and the image of God and ended up uh, being disobedient. He disregarded the humility 
that's required of him in his relationship with God and the way he saw himself um, with God. When we compare that same scenario of Jesus's obedience and becoming a man and um, becoming the sacrificial offering for all of us, we see that Jesus didn't see equality with God as something to be grasped. Jesus was aware of his status. He was aware of his identity. He understood and recognized the things that um, he was emptying himself of, the things that he was giving up weren't what made, him, um, made up his essence. And what we can take from that parallel is that uh, recognition and an understanding of who we are, who God has created us to be, that we are made in his image and likeness, it frees us up from having to um, attain greatness or grasp her for identity that we've already got. Having the mind of Christ provides us with the power to be obedient to the call for unity through humility. And moving on to verse 7, we see that Christ is our example of, uh, he's our cosmic example of humility. It says, but emptied himself by taking the form of the servant, being born in the likeness of men. So in writing this, Paul understood his, his audience. He understood the nature of those um, he was writing to. He recognized that we would want to shrink away from what we consider humiliating. He understood that we'd want to avoid humbling ourselves, that we'd find it distasteful. And what he did is he addressed it by pointing to the radical humility of Christ, because Christ is who we are patterning our lives after. So when we look at the reality of the incarnation, I think we miss the point if we don't see the ridiculously humbling aspect of Christ the creator becoming a man. So during this time, flesh and bone were considered disgusting. Um, the goal was to shed yourself of you know, the natural in order to become spiritual. So for Jesus to become a man and then dwell among common men was something that was just unheard of. That, was, that wasn't a thing. Um, and then Paul adds some more dimension to this by pointing out the fact that not only did Jesus shed his deity and come to earth as a man, but he came as a servant. So Jesus didn't, you know, become a man and then he was the king or he was a ruler or even, you know, a wealthy individual. Jesus came as a servant. He came with the purpose of serving. Um, lastly, Paul brings our attention to the fact that as a man, as a servant, Jesus laid down his life. He sacrificed it in the most humiliating way that you could lose your life um, on the cross. And I think we should like consider the majesty of the creator choosing to sacrifice himself in the way that he did. Crucifixion was considered like so horrific and um, just shameful that a Roman citizen could never be condemned to crucifixion. So verse seven, it forces us to consider like how can we, in the face of the radical humility that Jesus displayed, then feel ourselves above the call to humility? How can we feel justified in choosing to excuse ourselves from the call to unity because of our pride or because you know, we struggle with humbleness? Which leads to the point that unity is an issue of obedience. In verse eight, Paul highlights Jesus's obedience and humbling himself, humbling himself, which brings us to how our obedience to the call for unity is achieved 
through uh, humility. Verse 8 says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was obedient to the process that would lead to our union with him, that would lead back to that unity that was originally intended. And his obedience ended the curse brought about by Adam. It allowed it for us to once again enter in relationship, uh, in right relationship with our creator and with each other. Christ's cosmic example of humility then calls us to that same humility. His obedience calls us to that same obedience. We can look at the call for unity as a call that was painfully purchased by Christ, allowing himself to be killed on the cross. This unity then becomes an issue of obedience. It's required of us. Um, it is possible, as Brittany told us, it's possible through the power given to us through the Holy Spirit and having the mind of Christ. This obedience does come at a cost, though, and Paul doesn't shy away from pointing that out. It says, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' obedience had a cost, and Jesus considered that cost. He, uh, knowing the pain and the suffering that he was going to be subjecting himself to, he considered it worth it. He considered it worth it to bring us back into unity, to bring us back into um, reconciliation with himself and the Father and each other. So when we are considering that cost, um, it's important to know that there is one. It's important to know that there is going to be death that comes with humbling ourselves. But in considering that, remember that Jesus himself paid this. He, he already did this. Um, he gave up his deity. He became a man. He wasn't just any man. He was a servant. And eventually, he Amen. gave up his life. And that's, 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 that's beautiful, right? As we, as we um, follow this flow, you see Jesus um, saying, listen, complete my joy by, by, by living into unity. Um, and then he says, that's going to take humility. And then he turns and, and shows us, like, here's the biggest example of humility that'll blow everything that you are afraid of out the, block, out the box by, by, by pointing us to God himself, humbling himself, just to put on flesh, right? Like, here's the biggest thing. And then as he talks about what Jesus does, right, what you were saying, as he talks about what Jesus does in humbling himself, you go to 9, he says, therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when he says therefore, he starts off with saying therefore. This is implying that there's a cause and effect. This happened, therefore that happens, Right? He's, that's what he's, he's implying. Here's the cause. The cause was in 7 and 8. Jesus emptied himself and humbled himself, taking on the flesh, becoming a servant. He, he, he emptied himself. And what's the effect? God highly exalts him and bestows on him the highest name. Jesus is letting go and emptying himself. God the Father is giving to him generously. Jesus is lowering himself and humbling himself. God the Father is lifting him up. You start to think about Luke 17 and 33 where Jesus says, 
those that seek to preserve their lives will lose it, but those who lose their lives will keep it. And you see there's this positioning of Jesus for, for the sake of every nation, for the sake of every tongue, right? As he talks about unity, you see this, con, this context, like in Revelation 6, 7, 9 through 10, he says every nation was, was there worshiping God. And it just gives context, so he gives them a name that's above every name, every nation. And so that why? So that every knee would physically submit to him, bow. So that every tongue, this is all nations, would confess to him. And this would happen on one accord, led by the Spirit of God. What you see above everything, that unity of the church is, has intrinsic value. It's bigger than right now. It's about the forever. Unity in our families, unity in our, in our marriages, unity with one another. It's about the forever. As we get ready to, to, to break bread together and worship this great God that calls us into unity, I want us to think about this. Think about the, the cost of obedience and everything else. The bread represents his body that was broken for us. The juice it represents his blood that continues to flow for us. And I want us to think about all the hands that are throughout time reaching for that same cup that we are united with in eternity with God the Father. Brittany is going to lead us to a time of prayer. I'm going to ask you all to stand with me as we close in a time of prayer as Brittany leads us. And when she closes, we want to come to the throne together, break bread together, and worship. Father... We come before you and just admit, Jesus, that we need you, that we have walked under other rulers and other lords. And Father, we repent. Align our hearts to yours, Jesus. Jesus, as you perfectly obeyed the Father and you humbled yourself, holding nothing back, giving yourself in perfect obedience, I pray, Jesus, that we would enter into that life, that whatever the cost, how contrary to the things around us it seems that we would be willing, that we would move our lives under the rule and reign of Jesus, that your name would be highly exalted, Jesus, that we would participate with you in what you have been doing from the beginning and what you will accomplish in the end. So Jesus, I just pray that you would make us your people, that we would live into the oneness that you have made available to us, the relationship that we have with you and with one another, Jesus, that it would be a reality here. Jesus, we partake together of who you are because you have made us your family, and we thank you for that. In the name of Jesus and for the fame of Jesus, we pray. Amen.